Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the five movies nominated by the Directors Guild of America in the category of theatrical feature film, specifically discussing those films from an assistant director point of view. This episode kicks off our coverage of awards season, 11 episodes over the next four weeks. And each episode will feature film crew discussing nominees within their area of technical expertise. We tried this for the first time last year and it was a lot of fun. I hope you'll stick around for the series. Let me introduce today's guests. For better or worse, I'm joined by the same panel as last year. Katie Carroll, you're a member of the Directors Guild and you work as a first AD. It's possible your appearances on Below the Line are second only to my own. And we'll know for sure once I finish loading all of the back episodes into IMDb. Katie, welcome back. Thanks, Kid. Happy to be back. Glad to have you. Next, Bill Hardy. You're also a member of the DGA. We're friends from my earliest days as a DGA trainee in LA. And while you haven't done as many episodes as Katie, you're always welcome on the show. Nice to see you again. Hey, Skid. Thanks. Glad to be here. And finally, in our fourth chair, Sean O'Banion, you are still not a member of the DGA, but you have maintained your Producers Guild of America membership, I'm told, since last year. Glad you're able to join us again. Thanks very much for having me. I'm, I apologize to everyone for not being a DGA member. Well, we're, we're going to give you another pass, but at some point uh, we're going to see, and we're going to maintain the option of introducing you last every time, no matter how uh, else we organize this. Perfect. But John, I, I know you got another project in the works. Tell us a little about it before we dive into this. Yeah. So we don't have a date uh, yet for a premiere, but I have uh, inspired by you, of course, Skid. I've decided to put <laughs> my toe in the, in the podcast waters uh, and we're going to debut a show called Character, uh, probably in the late summer in which we get the opportunity to speak with a lot of great actors whose uh, faces everyone will definitely know, whose names they may not know, but uh, whose roles they will definitely have appreciated. Sean, that sounds like a great show. Definitely let us know and uh, we'll remind people when it comes out. Good luck, uh, good luck getting it going there. Thanks. Okay, before we dive into our nominee conversation, let's take a few minutes to review the DGA nomination process itself. I'll outline the basics. Early each year, every DGA member can select what they consider to be their top five films from a list of all eligible contenders from the previous calendar year. Now, 2021 had a wider eligibility window because of the pandemic, but this year is the exception, not the rule. Using a system of ranked choice voting, the top five films are presented to the membership for a second vote, where each DGA member can select a single film and whoever receives the most votes is declared the winner. Ranked choice voting is not used in the final round. Do any of you have thoughts about how this process worked out during the pandemic? The biggest thing I had was having seen almost no movies just because, you know, no movies were out. And I have a whole thing about going to the movies and versus watching it at home. So I ended not even doing the initial round of votes because I hadn't seen anything. So I'm just doing the second round, having watched all the nominees. Well, you know, I think it's an interesting push-pull on that, Katie, right? Because there's generally an encouragement to see movies in the theaters that was wiped out. And I do think there was quite a bit though of streaming opportunities this year. I think this year I, I had more streaming notices even than I received DVDs in the mail. Although for some things I still received both and there's a pile of the DVDs as well, but there seemed to be a push to get things out through streaming. But again, it's not the theater experience. I think it was a very ironic that Netflix, I got more DVDs from Netflix than anything else. I think I got 18. I stopped counting at some point, but I mean, <laughs> I was just, the environmentalist in me was just so bothered, really. I'm like, who doesn't have Netflix? And can that one person please just 
let Netflix know so they can get the DVDs. <laughs> I do think that that's like Netflix, like the studios who are shipping DVDs do, they trigger off a membership list and there is no cross-reference to who's actually got Netflix in their home. I did have a time where my internet dropped out and I was able to watch, I think, One Night in Miami on DVD because Amazon had sent it to me as well. And I felt like watching it the afternoon when I didn't have internet. But, uh, but generally, there is a lot of overlap there. You know, I do think bringing up Netflix ties in another point that I want to share. And that is a theory that because the large studios who have by the numbers Oscar plans were all frozen this year with the pandemic, it basically created an opportunity where we are seeing a lot of smaller films just get attention because otherwise the oxygen would have been sucked out of the room. But again, it's a theory. What do you guys think? I think you're right. Um, Oh, that's yeah, good like enough Hulu. for me. We can, that's, <laughs> thank you, Katie. Moving on. Move on. We can move <laughs> on. Thank you. That's a, <laughs> sorry, well, like, Katie, yeah, go Hulu, ahead. No, it's all good. Uh, Hulu and Amazon and Netflix, they stuck with whatever your pl- their plans were and they released as they had planned. And they have, the, you're right, the smaller movies. So they probably were, for better or for worse, pandemic was a boon for them. And they're like, hey, great. We'll just keep getting our more subscription uh, members and more people watching our stuff. And they probably did better for it. And yeah, their movies actually did better for it too. They got more eyes. I kept wondering about Nomadland. Was that still out? Like I saw it appear on Hulu and uh, and at that point, all I had was a DVD for it. So then I just streamed it on Hulu. I wondered if it was still available for the, the 1999 rental or whatever, or if it was suffering for people that didn't have Hulu subscriptions because it seemed to appear earlier. I think they did leave that, you know, in like the iTunes and whatnot or, or you know, Walmarts. Um, I think people still had access to it, even if they weren't a subscriber of one of the streamers. I don't necessarily know if that's the case for something like, you know, Sound of Metal or One Night in Miami. I don't know if Amazon was making that same play, but um, I think they were trying to drive drive subscribers to the Amazon service. But I don't know. I mean, you sort of almost figure Amazon has people anyway, right? Because they're all shopping there. So I do realize that whether it's because of my um, membership in the guild or just because I subscribe to a lot of streaming services, I'm disinclined to find and pay for a movie individually streaming. I will, when theaters open back up, I will again go to a single movie and see in the theater. In fact, look forward to that. But to charge me extra for single movie at home, I feel like there's a lot of other streaming activity, you know, to, to catch my eyes. And I don't pay a lot of attention to sort of that layered rollout, if you will, where it's 20 or $30 up front and then it becomes something less. And then it finally goes to a streaming service that I don't notice where there's a difference in that or what the strategies might be. Yeah, they, I'm, I'm not really on, you know, the Disney Plus model now, which they've just announced that uh, Black Widow from Marvel is going to be like a premium purchase on their service that you already pay for and that's you know i'm like well i'll wait the three months you know plus that one's getting released in the theaters and in july i might actually feel safe going to a theater even like midweek or something that feels like a big screen to me i really want to see that yeah for sure fingers crossed Mm -hmm. okay well let's talk about the nominees for this year uh i will announce them in order alphabetically by director's last name. And uh, for listeners, by the way, there may be spoilers for these films. First up, Minari, directed by Lee Isaac Chung. What did you guys think of this film? 
I loved it. That was the last one. I watched all five this week. I hadn't seen any. So I just kind of went through and watched all five. And that was the one I watched last night. Loved everything about it. Beautiful. And really great story told well. One vote from Katie. What did, what do you guys think? I, I feel like I, I was the counterpoint to all of Katie's opinions last year. So, <laughs> um, yeah, my my initial reaction was, oh, this is the movie about how horrible marriage is and how your mother-in-law will destroy your life and burn it to the ground the first chance she gets. <laughs> and I'm then not married, I, and, so maybe I don't bring that to it. Yeah, neither am I. I honestly said, my, I said your mother when I actually, I was like, yeah, your mother will just burn your life to the fucking ground the first chance she gets, man. But I didn't like hold it against the movie. I was just like, yeah, man. Um, I know I really liked it too. I, I, I liked it. I just, uh, I, it's the, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not sure what it didn't have. Like the things that I, you know, I always just go, uh, that it's production value, that there's something in AD back of my head where I'm like, there wasn't a lot, there weren't no big crowd scenes there. It was a lot of, uh, a field. And then that, those are like the, what in my mind I go, it's a nice little movie. And I'm not sure whether that's insulting or not. Like in my mind, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. It just tells me the mood that I need to be in to watch it and appreciate it. Yeah. I, um, I like the film. But I also, there were some things that, you know, for, I love Will Patton usually, but I almost felt like he was at a different level than everybody else in the film. Like, I mean, I know the characters like, you know, he's speaking in tongues and he's, but even the, the comb over and the Coke bottle glasses and stuff, I was just kind of like, I don't know. I feel like he's, he's just acting on a, on a, on another plane. This is like a really simple told story and he's kind of going into characterville. But I did like it, and I'm a huge fan of Steven Yen. So, you know, I, I will pretty much watch anything that guy does. And um, I also thought that the relationship, especially between the little kid and the grandma, was really sweet. You know, Sean, if you get Patton on your show, you can ask him what was going on with that. With, uh, <laughs> yeah, he can, he's you know, on our see. list. He's definitely <laughs> on the list. Let's, you know, you can come back on that. And I, I, I also really appreciated the film. I'm happy to see it on a lot of lists. Um, was a little underwhelmed with how it unfolded and uh, AD perspective. Uh, it does seem like a simpler film to get pulled together at the same time. It looks very low budget and th there's challenges in low budget filmmaking, no matter what as an AD and trying to keep on their schedule. It doesn't look like they've got a lot of days to shoot it. You know, just a couple of background scenes and most of the stuff out of the farm and, and in the field. But and the that kids trailer. are in everything. That's a good point. And, and that, that kid is a young kid. So you got, what, six hours with him at best? Unless Girl, you're shooting it in Kansas, maybe. Maybe the, the rules are different. If you're Kansas, if you're non-signatory, non maybe it's different. I actually different. looked. I was curious. And they shot in Oklahoma. And the other side of it was, like, how difficult it would be to AD a movie where the vast majority of the language is not necessarily a language you speak. Like... I have no idea if the script supervisor spoke Korean. Like, at what point are you, like, are we resetting? What's going on? Like, if the Korean director is speaking to the actors, maybe in a different language, and you're trying to figure out what is going on. I mean, I've done shows in Mexico with Mexican directors and actors, and my high school Spanish starts to get a little bit better. But 
Korean's a whole different ball game. And at what point are you just trying to keep track of what is going on on the set? That's and then you also have level. the fact that the director, writer, director was Steven Yeun's cousin. Really? Uh, yeah, which Steven Yen, I think, didn't even realize at the time he got the offer. They were like, oh, your cousin's <laughs> making a movie. And he was like, who's my cousin? And they were like, Lee Isaac Young. Is this the movie that was debated for whether it was a foreign language film? Yeah. Like that's I, I kept thinking that as I was watching it. And if we concede that it's a foreign language film, but at the same time, it doesn't really matter. Uh, when we were talking about like perspective last year, I, or when I rambled on about it at least it, that is affects the will Patton character sean you know if you think about it like he's i don't want to say comic relief but he's definitely the crazy white person and yeah. because he's the uh one of the only english speakers too it already sets him aside from a story standpoint into an ex a special category of that's the crazy guy i i thought yeah i really liked will Patton in it too because he made me laugh. I just can't. Just, there was a certain point. I think there's a scene where he takes like Steven Yen into his place. And I was like, is this turning into his, like a murder movie? Is Will Patton <laughs> going to murder him and then like, you know, hang him on a cross or something? <laughs> like, Yeah, there was a close up of his hands at one point. And I was like, I don't, oh, that, that did not, oh, yeah, that just gave me the willies, his hands. I was like, I can't. This director though, like he went to Yale. This is an American story. And I think this is an interesting, and is at the heart of the debate, Bill, I think about what, where this thing belongs is to put into a foreign language, even into the foreign language category. I think it actually takes away from it on some level when, and we'll talk about this, you know, going on as well, but there's something about just the, the zeitgeist and Americana that's, that I think this film does really capture on, in a powerful way. And it would be interesting again to see how that all comes together on set. And again, I'm also a fan of Stephen Young, mostly just from Walking Dead. But other than that, and I, I would scan those credits looking for any name I might know, just even tangentially, and nobody. Like, I'm, th I'm guessing it was a non-union crew, probably still DGA, but non-union IOTC crew or non-IOTC crew. So Yeah, it was, it was pretty small. I do know that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and sometimes these smaller films, like they're non-DGA, but then when they flip, when they get nominated they get offered the opportunity to come on board. Uh, I know that happened with um, eighth grade where they were not DGA when they filmed, but then they had an opportunity after that or were recognized as the ADs, even though it was non-union when they did it. You know, we should just go check the credits because if they don't separate their names in the credits, then it wasn't they DGA when they, when they made it, but they, they are separated. Did. So mm -hmm. that's right. Katie watched it like this week. All right. So we'll, <laughs> for, all, for all the packaging information that we don't remember, we'll just ask, uh, we'll ask Katie. <laughs> so, okay. Well, again, so that, that suggests they were DGA at the time. Well, let's move on to the second film on our list. Promising Young Woman directed by Emerald Fennell. What did you guys think of Promising Young Woman? You also have to take into account that three of the four of us are men uh, for exactly. this particular film. But <laughs> I, I, for, uh, for what little my opinion matters, I loved Promising Young Woman. I thought it was fantastic. And my uncomfortableness throughout the enti my entire watching was what the entire viewing was really what solidified that for me. I'm like, for this movie to have the level of uh, visceral effect it was having on me as I watched it, was I was just so uncomfortable the entire time. And it was amazing. I mean, like it, 
you know, it was a full, a full body experience for the viewing. I thought, I think a lot of guys are going to have to take 10 minutes to realize what's bothering them about the movie before they're going to be able to continue on 15 minutes in. I, I, I think, uh, there's the entire me too, uh, thing is just crammed into this one hour and 45 minutes in a really interesting conversational kind of way that, uh, I liked had a big effect. Yeah. I think it probably was my favorite of all five. It's probably the one that's going to get my vote. Um, and I liked how it showed the, the whole rainbow of various sexual harassment, sexual assaults, how anything can happen and how you view it with a different prism can affect everything. So you have to be aware of what is going around you, who is with you, who is not with you, what is happening. And without sounding too pedantic, the entire movie is a teachable moment that doesn't feel like a teachable moment. And the twist at the end, I did not know that's how it ended. And I kind of loved that very, very much. Yeah, that that twist, I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> what did they really? No, come on, it's not. Uh, and then I, I kept was like, waiting oh my God, for the last thing. And no, oh, that's actually <laughs> yeah. happening. Yeah, even like, you know, you're waiting for the carry moment, right? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, that's the end of the movie. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I felt, I mean, I have nitpicks with kind of all the movies on the list this year, but um, I thought they did a really good job. I thought Emerald Fennell, like, she's been kind of groomed for a while. You know, she comes through the Phoebe Waller-Bridge thing through the TV show Killing Eve, where they made her the showrunner, and then she was on The Crown playing Camilla Parker Bowles. And, you know, like, the, there's been this groundswell of upward momentum for her. Um, and then to see this, her, her first feature, you know, come out like this, and you're like, wow, you, you handled that very well. Yeah, it's a tricky story told well. Uh, the casting is really interesting, too. You yes. mentioned eighth grade, and I think, isn't the, the sort of love interest the guy that directed eighth grade. Bo, yeah, Bo, uh, Burnham. Bo, Bo Burnham plays a uh, character in this. And you're right. He was the director in eighth grade. You know, I, I have, I got mixed feelings about it. Um, they were not triggered from the beginning of the film. I was actually all in when it started and I liked the way the story was told. I think a couple of things tweak on me. I don't particularly like the way the ending twists and the way it plays out and, it reminds me of uh, a dislike I have for a, uh, another film that might even be on the 2021 list, but uh, the people are talking about with I Care A Lot, where the ending doesn't quite make up for me kind of the where things go and get there. Like it's not enough as far as how things balance out with the twist on this. And then I also think, and not, not knowing sort of Emerald's background and where she came through, when I was like, oh, right, Killing Eve, I'm one of the maybe few people that really dislikes the second season of Killing Eve. And I think there's some of a similar sort of heavy handedness in the way that Promising Young Woman comes together, not because of the topics or, you know, what we're talking about, or this, again, Katie, as you say, it's a teachable moment throughout, in favor of all that, but just something just about the tone and the attitude didn't sit as well with me. But no opposition to it being here. I think uh, it comes together with a lot of difficult elements in a way that's very, very watchable, right? For a film, you know, on its topic and, and where it's going. I, I'm impressed by it. 
tonally, it's a very uh, fine line to walk. And I, I, I kind of agree with you, Skid, and like, the, without saying what that reveal is, there, there are things happening peripheral to that reveal or just before where it kind of gets a little broad, more broad than anything else in the movie, you know, because it rides this line of like dark comedy to like, this is real stuff we're talking about in, in the world. And I think in some of those instances, she hadn't really stuck the landing, but overall, I, I enjoyed it. It's the, a little bit of a difference in what you can do with a smaller budget, but slightly more budget. You can get better well-known actors who really only have one scene, maybe two, and then they can really stick the landing with the ones, like Connie Britton's scene is so great. I love that scene. Uh, and she I mean, probably a day of filming, probably made some decent bank. If not, then like some back-end deal, whatever it was. But, you know, it was worth it for a day. Oh, I have a day. I can come do this scene and knock it out of the park. And you get this well-known, again, character actor who can nail this role. And there's so many smaller, smaller parts. Like the parents, Clancy Brown and uh, Jennifer Coolidge. Coolidge, yeah. So great. And Jennifer Coolidge also, like, known more for comedic side. And, yes, she is comedic in this, but in a really heartfelt way. And then just the sadness at the end with the two of them just really also hit home. I just felt so bad for them having, and their feelings towards their daughter. Like I, that's something about what you can do with a small budget with the right connections to get it in the hands to the right actors who, you know, can take your small movie to the next level. Yeah, even somebody like Laverne Cox doesn't have much to do as no. the owner of the place that she works at, the lead works at, but still she's a welcome presence. And, you know, anytime you get, those kind of people you're like oh cool okay you know every little role suddenly matters a little more because you're you have some familiarity with the person exactly so you think with that kind of cast does it shrink your shooting schedule like because you bring in folks who know it really well there's a lot of different sets but they're not a lot of crazy sets right like so this this movie's pretty contained probably doing a couple of weeks would you guys estimate probably yeah maybe four weeks give or take yeah, yeah I mean, like 25 all, days, something like that, 23 days. Sounds about right. Yeah, and with each of these known actors, like if you only get them for a day or two, they're going to nail their scene. They know, like, even if they have a lot of dialogue, they're going to come in and just knock it out of the park in just two days. And with limited sets, like, you're not going to go crazy with your shots. You're not going to suddenly create a walk and talk because you don't have the set to do a walk and talk. So it's more about finding the tone and where these characters are coming from than creating these elaborate shot. So it's more about the discussion of acting. For her having just come off the Killing Eve, like she's able to more, you know, quickly pick her shots and I think move at speed, which, which probably greatly helped her pull this movie off. Yeah, and a lot of these actors, even though they are well-known, a lot of them come from the TV world. So they're not scared of doing five, six pages in a day, seven pages in a day if they have to. And they'd they rather maybe do that and sign on for one day than hey, I don't know if I can do a page a day and now you shoot seven days. Like, no, let's just not just do it in one day, get it done, over with. I have some fun and we move on. Now, it is interesting that the team that's nominated uh, has a UPM and two second ADs, but no first, which I think is intriguing. And there must be some hmm. kind of story there about why the first AD isn't on their team. Bill, you're laughing. Yeah, that's a, I can tell you right now, that's probably a story where one of those UPMs is going, why are they talking about it? Stop talking about it. There was a first AD. It was fine. I, I, I know I've been there. 
Emerald's coming at this from her experience on TV. Uh, don't you think that's it? Would be odd to try and do this in that kind of low budget a manner, Bill? I, I wouldn't be surprised if a TV if being focused on the TV world. I hadn't even thought about that. That probably helped this movie move along at a nice clip across the board. We'll move on to the next film on our list, Mank, directed by David Fincher. This was my favorite, personally. <laughs> I would have guessed that coming out of the gate. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. <laughs> tell us, tell us, tell us, Bill, what you liked about this. Uh, I mean, you know, Citizen Kane and stuff. It, uh, it. I mean, the whole movie. You know, I, I keep waiting for Fincher to have the movie where he starts off going is saying that I'm on the spectrum, and then the movie starts. Um, it's. Uh, I mean, it's. I am always looking forward to the, the way he's going to present his movie. It's always extra exciting to me. I couldn't tell if it was just because I was listening to the movie on the headphones. I was fascinated with the sound, just the fact that it sounded like I was watching a forties movie in the theater, the way it was echoing on the soundtrack. And well, Bill, it was, Bill, if I can make a pitch there, you should come back for our Oscar coverage. When we talk about the nominees for sound next week, please come back for that episode and give it a listen. But yes, sorry, Bill, go ahead. What he said. Uh, yeah. And I mean, and then once you, you're, you're already, you go into black and white, you're, you've got, uh, real people that uh you're trying like the Orson the whole Orson Welles scene I had never uh I've totally forgotten the actor's name Tom Burke I, I was amazed at his Orson Welles I ended up reading an entire article about how uh Orson Welles has been portrayed through cinema for the last 50 years and how every movie that has him in it uh being played by someone else is done a different way and uh, I think this guy really, he nailed the impression. If it's actually his voice, I think he nailed the impression as a, a Brit, especially. Um, and we in cinema think of Orson Welles as the, our George Washington, as if there was never a movie made before Citizen Kane sometimes. Um, and rightfully so in a lot of ways too, even if it was just the way the people that he pulled together to make his movies I think he deserves the credit, but that Mank was one of those people. And uh, I couldn't get enough of that story because I didn't know it. I knew the history of behind who Citizen Kane was supposed to be about, but uh, the level of involvement the writer had with uh, Hearst in his real life, I had no idea about. And it just brought it all home for me that much more. All that daydreaming I've done about Rosebud. Um, <laughs> it gave me a, a something to focus on. And I feel like we're going to line up on a spectrum on this one, but uh, Sean or Katie, I'll let you guys go first before. What do you guys think of Meg? It's one of those where I felt like the parts were more than the sum of the whole. I don't know if that's the right phrasing. There's so many elements that I love. Like Bill, I hadn't really thought about the sound until you said it. I'm like, oh, that's that's very true. The the images and how it was shot black and white with the super powerful white light and how everybody was backlit, even with sun in their faces and you could tell, but that was okay. Or it looked like it was on a sound stage, but that was okay. Cause that's how they shot it in the forties. And uh, certain scenes that I loved are walking around Hearst castle with the monkeys in the background. Uh, There's so many things I liked about it. 
but as a whole, I felt like I was missing something. And there are a couple of things that always just kind of rub me the wrong. One, it's not really about the making of Citizen Kane. It's about the writing of Citizen Kane. It almost ends when he hands Orson the script and says, okay, that's not the making of Citizen Kane. But on top of that, it's almost more about the politics around what went into the writing of Citizen Kane as opposed to, so like the politics part of it kind of rung true for now, which is one of the reasons I'm guessing Fincher decided to make it because it's very, very apropos for now. Um, one other thing, like Gary Oldman's a brilliant actor. I will never take that away from him. But the, at the very end where he says, I'm 43, I laughed out loud alone in my house. <laughs> You have a 65-year-old man playing a 43-year-old man, and he's saying in all earnestness, I'm 43. I'm like, God, I feel old. Are you supposed to look 65 when you're 43? I mean, well, I in fairness, people back then did look 65. <laughs> that that, that really was... started to enter my mind. Like, oh, everybody looked older. It's like, so I was instantly out of the movie at that point, doing math and like looking up how, when was it? Like, I, no. I was, I was laughing just as you were, and then I stopped and went, well... Uh, Orson Welles was 24 playing a 70 year old in Citizen Kane so it's kind of a hat tip <laughs> to that and then I realized that I was just being a film student and stopped <laughs> thinking but uh, I can justify anything everything you said is absolutely correct Katie I but I you know I I still it's it was not about making of the movie and that's all I talked about there too but <laughs> But, but yeah, yeah like I love the, the set scenes like that were on studio lots and how they used to do it, but how it's still a little bit the same, even like a hundred years later. But also like when Davies is leaving one lot to go to the other lot and they literally take her dressing room and it's not just a trailer, it's a whole caravan. It's that part I love about it, but that's not the part that makes a movie really, really great. That's one element of why we like it. I agree with Katie. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a huge Fincher fan from the start. I'm a Gary Oldman fan. Um, I knew going in that technically it was going to be stunning and, you know, talking about being on the spectrum, like the attention to detail would just be off the charts. Um, a friend of mine who's been working in the sound department, Lucasfilm for years, told me that he was going to be doing this film. I've known him about 24 years. And I said, if you do that movie, you're getting nominated for an Oscar. And he got nominated for an Oscar. So um, when, when Bill, when you said the sound, I was like, yeah, Jeremy, <laughs> go Jeremy. Um, because he just knew like, you know, with Fincher in that period, it's his dad's script. Like he's going to just throw everything he's got at it. Um, but I wasn't that intrigued by the story of, you know, of Mank. I was more interested in the people that he kept coming into contact with. So, you know, what's his name? Charles Dance as, as Hearst and like any of those scenes in the ballroom and the whole thing, I was like, wow, man, this is amazing. And the technical stuff, yeah. I mean, I, I listened on headphones too because I knew what to expect. And it was, just, that's incredible. It feels like it was made then. If I didn't know who any of these actors were, I wouldn't know it was a modern thing, which is pretty impressive. But the story, I kind of was like, okay, that's fine. You're, you're also, it's the, the story of a crumbling alcoholic too. That's something I thought about a couple of times. The, the, the world is spinning around him. And as the writer, it's his uh, take on what was happening, even if it's not factually correct in some cases. 
So that's a, so that might just be another film school student uh, justification, but I, I, I felt that I, I, I'm, it's just the, that Gary Oldman hair thing that's always falling down. Just it, it, it he, even when he's sober, he still looks drunk because of it, I think is <laughs> where I'm headed with that. Well, you know, Bill, I'll pull on that thread a little bit in that I, again, I think if David Fincher, I'm also a big fan of his past work. And so he got a lot of credit from me before the movie came out. I was really looking forward to this. If he had gotten that script and said, you know, this is the story we want to tell about Mank. And, and again, I think it is the story is more about him. It's not about the making of, of Susan Cain. And it is the ties with father. I think he got in the script and said, let me suss this out and put this story in. Those elements are great. But I think whether it's because it was his dad's original script or what just sort of, uh, a reverence there or not reworking it enough. But I think a lot of the politics that Katie talked about as are relevant now were written then, but it starts to get confusing about what's true and not true. And even historically, you're doing all this effort to make it sound and look like it's done accurately, but your actual historical events do not line up with what you're presenting in the story beyond just sort of like, well, this is how things kind of you know, simplified version for the movie. It, I spend, you spend more time, I think, even with the Hollywood stuff, when he starts telling Hollywood stories, I'm also a film buff, maybe not to your degree, Bill, but I find myself constantly dropping out to think, wait, what's the relationship between those people and having to keep the computer open by my side, which makes it hard to concentrate on all the other elements of expertise that are, are coming together. I mean, on some level, I feel like um, it's sort of like if Titanic if Cameron had the characters like picking up the silverware all the time and we're like historically accurate, everything. And I feel like it's sort of distracted, right. From what, what, what there was some really great character and story elements in there. And there's some amazing scenes in here. You know, let's talk about from an AD perspective with just the scenes like where they're all at dinner, all of those actors, plus the elements of background with your, you know, the additional cast and then the line in the rooms. That's, that's a lot of work. There's a lot of work on this movie. In costume, so. in period piece, then in costume. Like I, I looked at that dinner scene like, oh, Jesus Christ. That, <laughs> that, that is my personal Vietnam right there. <laughs> I, I, dinner, dinner scene, I think, weak shooting flat out. Just Minimum. as soon as you say dinner scene. And, well, I would, and, then, and then add in the Fincher and it's three weeks. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say the week for until everybody gets up and leaves. And then you have another week until it's just the two of them talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I heard I heard an interview. Uh, they had actually, I think Fincher, they had Fincher interview Sorkin about Trial of Chicago 7 and, and vice versa. And Fincher said to him, so, you know, how long did you have to shoot the riot scenes for Trial of Chicago 7? Like, you know, two weeks or something. And, and he was like, no, 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 I don't get a Fincher schedule. I don't know. <laughs> he was like, no, you know, like, no, I get like two days. <laughs> Well, you also don't necessarily get a Fincher team because we were just talking about, wow, on Promising Young Woman, the team is surprisingly and mysteriously small on Fincher's team. First 80 second, 80 second, second, and not one, not two, but three full-time additional second ADs on that staff as far as putting that together. So, well, a lot of effort uh, went into the film again. Um, how it came together and what came out, we'll see what the voters think. I did want to just add one more thing because you something you said, Skid, made me think of it in the way that the detail that he uses detail and, and making you feel in the period. 
I never came out of Zodiac, his, his film about the Zodiac killer. I was so invested in that movie and those characters. And I was definitely absorbing the period, the seventies and the design and stuff, but I never thought like, wait, what is that? Or is that, you know, but I totally agree with you and Mank. I really was sort of caught off guard by some of it and trying to put the math together. You did mention him talking to Aaron Sorkin, who not coincidentally is the next director on our list for the trial of the Chicago seven. It's another one where it's like, there are moments that I loved and I am a Sorkin fan, but I'm more a Sorkin fan for his writing. I'm not sure that he's there as a director yet. Um, he's learned at the feet of some really great directors and he's still learning, but I mean, I've never met the man, so I don't know, but maybe he doesn't realize he's still learning yet because he's so well-known as a screenwriter. Maybe, I don't know. But again, a lot of great moments. And I did like how they used the trial and they would flash to different moments in Abby Hoffman doing the stand-up. And I, I liked how they used that inner cut of it all, but it still felt a little lacking to me. But I don't know why. I can't, I can't figure out why. I, I think that... Uh whenever I start daydreaming about Aaron Sorkin and yes, I, I do daydream about Aaron Sorkin. Uh, it, uh, you know, a few good men, there was a lot of time where, you know, it started, if people don't know, started as a play. So he was able to work that courtroom shit out on stage. And then you, like, I felt it was a lot more stagey than his last decade, 15 years of work. It, I, I think a lot of aspects of this could easily transfer to the stage. And that's a movie. And I'm talking about a movie that's got mob scenes too. Like, you know, it, uh, I, 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 I was there. I understand what you're saying that it was, uh, it felt a little uh, disconnected too, but it was then you, once you bring in the flashbacks from the courtroom, that's when it all tied together for me. I felt disjointed in the first half of the movie. Then I felt more like I was being presented it as an investigator or a jury member of the event. So I wasn't able to see the whole picture until the end of the story. Does that sound like a complete thought? Yeah. <laughs> it does. I'm also yeah. kind of curious, like how much he looked at the transcripts, like how, how real is this? Because some of those comments, and I, I'm a fan of different podcasts that are true crime podcasts, and I listen to all the, like, wrongfully convicted, so I get into the heads of all the lawyers of how they're doing Like, holy crap. Well, yeah. The Julius Hoffman scene, for example, with uh, with Bobby Seale, that's that's direct trans. It's insane that I, that happened. Not just, like, literally every word out of that judge's mouth. I'm like, mistrial, mistrial, mistrial. How? Oh, my God. And Yeah, and it's all, that's, the, the transcript stuff is, from what I've heard, really legit to what happened, and it's astonishing. Yeah, I, I, I actually think it may be weird to say it, but I think his first film as a director, Molly's Game, was a better directed film. And I also think in something like this, Netflix was the variable, right? Because if this was a focus movie or something like that, you would have been like, well, of course, this is their prestige entry for the season. And, and so you kind of go in with a, maybe a heavier expectation of what it's going to present. And I, and I feel like, yeah, what Katie said, I agree with that there are moments within it that are really brilliant. 
a lot of them, I think, to do more with the dialogue he gave the actors and then the performance the actors gave than the direction of the specific moment, if that makes sense. Flashing to a few good men, like if this were still written by Aaron Sorkin, but directed by Rob Reiner, I can't even fathom how different it would be. And I think it'd be a better movie. And it was supposed to be Spielberg, right? It was Spielberg's idea uh, eight years ago or something like that. Spielberg brought him in and said, what about Trial of Chicago 7? And as Sorkin tells it, he didn't even know about it. And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I would love to do that. And left the room and called his dad and said, what the hell's the Chicago 7? <laughs> and his dad explained it. And then he was like, okay, well, I guess I just agreed to write it for Spielberg. Um, and then, you know, all these years later, he makes the movie as director. And actually, Sasha Baron Cohen was the, the link as well back then because Spielberg said, I want Sasha to play Abby. Interesting. Yeah, I saw that he was a producer on it as well. So I thought that was interesting. You know, I think my issue with Sorkin's sort of directorial career in general is that his script doesn't get reinterpreted and softened in a way that when another director does the work, it does. Either he reinforces his own ticks and quirks in writing as the director in a way that just, I think it was finely tuned and well honed on West Wing. But then since then, I feel like particularly as he does these historical dramas, they sound too much like West Wing for me to still think that this is what's accurately happening in a historical piece. And that I just, I'm just uncomfortable with it in kind of the way where he presents things and where he emphasizes it. I mean, I'm for some reason, I'm just, it doesn't really come together for me with him as a, as, as a director. Interestingly, I think that while the DGA awards are often a precursor for the Oscars in Best Director, Sorkin is not nominated by the Oscars in this category. And so were he to win, it would be a standalone with the DGA. Well, first off, I think that you are just having traumatic flashbacks listening to Aaron Sorkin dialogue where you're trying to send crosses in the background. You're like, I... Okay, having I, worked the show, you're having worked right. the show, you're saying that I can't get out of that. That's, that's fair. As your <laughs> fans, as your long-term fans will know, you have many West Wing episodes. And uh, yeah. are like, I Aaron, think... just give me a pause. Just one pause, man. <laughs> I need to think of Richard Attenborough in The Great Escape. We could be getting dozens out in this darkness. <laughs> well, interesting on the balance of his team, uh, there's a regular group of ADs, but he's got three UPMs assigned to the movie. So whether they shifted it in time or whether it was just that large dealing with Netflix and DreamWorks both on this, I don't know. Uh, other thoughts on the trial of Chicago 7? It's a big movie. I mean, there's a lot of work going on. They're not on the team full time, but you know they had a bunch of additional ADs out there running background and all period background and yeah, yeah they apparently went to that that actual park and they did shoot there and i actually was uh, you know given the scale i imagine netflix gave them to work with i was impressed with those scenes in the in the riot sequence um because you could have gone you could have said well we'll just we'll get archival footage from this we'll get newsreel footage and we'll just kind of play it out that way and we'll either you know CGR actors into it or whatever, but the fact that they went for it and I and I felt that that those sequences were pretty effective actually, and and well handled by him for somebody who hadn't done anything. I mean, he's a guy who likes to just have people talk in rooms, which is most of the movie. But but those couple scenes I was impressed with. Well, let's talk about the last film on our list, Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao. It's a movie that I 
I mean, I think it's going to sweep. I think it's going to take everything it's nominated for at the Oscars as well. I appreciate and, and, and sort of like the way that she works with non-actors and brings a lot of people into her films that feel of the world. You know, they're just faces we don't get to see on screen uh, very often. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I guess I didn't really identify. I mean, I'm obviously I'm not a woman of a certain age and, and this sort of idea of getting in a van and just living out in a, you know, whatever, it, it never really got to me. In fact, so there's a moment where she's offered an opportunity to not have to live the life that she's living. It really would be a chance for her to settle down and, and live in a good place, in, a, in an actual home. Um, and she chooses not to go that route. And for me, it just sort of, it really took me out. It, it made me, in a way, kind of dislike the character. Because there, there didn't seem to be any reason for her not to accept that. Like, she, it, it seems throughout the first half of the movie that she's looking for connection. And uh, it reminded me of a similar thing in um, Into the Wild, Sean Penn's film, where this guy is on the road and people keep presenting him, you know, chances to have a different life and he keeps sort of passing on it. And there's no real rhyme or reason to why. And, and it just sort of made me turn on the character, I guess. I hear what you're saying. I think, I mean, that van life actually does appeal to me a little bit, but more conceptually. <laughs> Because I would go more with a small RV that actually has a shower and the washer dryer in it, as opposed to <laughs> like there was a moment yeah. where I thought, like, when was the last time she showered? Yeah, but Katie, like, that would not be unlike the life you live as an AD now. <laughs> Just well, traveling from at least place get, to place. You know, an apartment or a hotel okay. or whatever. But, and I hear what you're saying about like looking for connection. And I think she's sort of looking for connection, but she's looking for the reason to avoid the connection because of the connection she had with her former husband. She's a widow. And I think where the movie is lacking is we only really hear her describe her relationship with her husband before he passed in one scene. And she's talking about how great he was and how much the town loved him. But I think either we needed to hear it at least one more time or how they met or some other reason as to why she doesn't, it's not that she doesn't want this connection with David Strathairn, it's that it's the same kind of relationship. Like she still wants more friendship. She still wants those connections, but it's another love connection. And I think we just miss what her former relationship was because we're, it's, we never really know it. We don't yeah, see it. It starts after that. So in, for all of us, it's like, well, why wouldn't you? But I, I, I kind of understand what she's thinking of like, okay, well, it's never going to measure up and I'm only going to hold him as not measuring up. So I, that's not fair to him, but it's never explained to us. So maybe I'm just imagining that, but that's yeah, what no, I Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But you also, I mean, I get the like tiny house living kind of vibe and you see all these people converting school buses and stuff and putting in hardwood floors and just like, yeah, there's something very freeing about just like hitting the road and get a job in whatever little town. But I also felt like Fern was not, I felt like she, she was out of options. You know, yes. I mean, the, the, the van breaks down at one point and she's got to like, you know, make a deal with these guys to fix the carburetor or whatever, cause the thing won't run. So, so that's why the house and the, the life with that character potentially represented like, you can stop doing this thing where it's like living desperate day Almost to desperate more day. Almost freedom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I think 
I think we just needed more explanation. But that being said, I also felt like this movie was a little bit too long. It's beautiful, but I think they probably could have done maybe one less sunset shot, one less Vista <laughs> shot. <laughs> it's a lot of like selling the romanticism of being on the road, but not, there's a lot of like, okay, we see your crap in a bucket once, but no, let's show that it's, that's a daily scenario. Like <laughs> yeah. doing it once, like, oh, wow, that's kind of rough. It's like crapping in the woods. Like, oh, it's kind of sucks. Like, no, that's like every single day. That's your life. Like, let's take away some of the romanticism of this. Well, I, that's funny, Katie, that you think that that's what they were selling. I don't think they're selling the romanticism of it at all. Sean, coincidentally, I've watched Into the Wild actually very recently, uh, a couple of months ago, um, and saw some comparisons on that. Whereas though Into the Wild definitely romanticizes or sort of is trying to capture uh, his spirit and, you know, leaving the, the grid, if you will. I think here, this was more a matter of um, sort of being forced into it with the economics and the situation. And Katie, yeah. I think the story of her relationship, I think you're absolutely right that what we don't see helps inform her sort of reluctance to form new connections beyond the superficial. But I also think the other powerful thing about this film is it's, it's, I think it's sort of a zeitgeist for the times, not that we're all on the road or, you know, forced to live this nomad lifestyle, but the sort of forced into our apartments and, you know, a lot of people having economic issues. And I think there's a lot there that um, is captured intentionally or not about what's going on. And I think not even, you know, not wanting that lifestyle, but seeing that a lot of people are being forced into that lifestyle, I think it spoke to me. And I think, Sean, the scenes that, you know, it's complicated to sort of when to leave that lifestyle or not, or can she, or will she, or does she want to? But that didn't actually take me out of it. I do think it's a little long, um, but I think that the skill of sort of sussing this movie out of what they did is to her credit. It's hard to say for a team, I'll, I'll Aside briefly here, uh, Mary Kerrigan is the UPM. Mary Kerrigan is also listed as the first assistant director, and there are no other DGA members on this. And I feel like this is this is a small, we're going to go find our movie kind of thing, and then how yeah. it comes together. Bill, I, I had a I had a distinct. Uh, first off, was this? Am I remembering correctly? This was based on a book. Yes. Yeah. So, and I'm going to guess that in the realm of fast food nation and uh other things it's a fictionalized account of a what i don't know what you would call it like a yeah. documentary book yeah kind it of is thing. and and includes some of the people from the book right playing, okay playing themselves right. so, basically because i knew that i knew that everybody but uh strathern and uh, uh mcdormand were uh real people that also, you know, it's a lot of the first 20 minutes of 2001. It's a lot of, uh, and Into the Wild's another great, it's a really nice thing to put your finger on there, Sean, because it's a lot of people standing in nature looking around too, where you know in the book, it's not necessarily, you know, you can't write a sunset no matter how hard you try. It struck me right off the bat as this is a, a very, uh, Errol Morris movie. Okay. Like, I don't know people who don't know, like an Errol Morris documentarian is known for recreating things in his documentary. That's what it just felt like the McDormand stuff was the 
recreation and anytime anybody else talked, it felt like a documentary to me. For my take on it, when people were romanticizing the road, I started to debate whether they were romanticizing it for the fact that, that this was their only option anyway. And that's how you justify it. That's how you get up in the morning when you got to sh- take a shit in a bucket. Um, it definitely had an effect on me. And at the same time, it was a little long and I felt like it could, you could, have. Trim- it was, you know, I, I was about to say, I guess you could have trimmed some of the main character out of the movie. <laughs> and then at the same time, I'm like, but knowing what she went through, I mean, God, she's such a consummate actor that she's going to go and work at an Amazon facility or whatever she did and actually travel on the road for three months. I think she said at some point she realized she hadn't taken a shower or slept and realized that maybe the performance needed to <laughs> needed to just get some sleep. Try acting as Lawrence Olivier said. <laughs> to something you said, Skid, it never took me out, you know, in terms of, I mean, I was still invested in the story. I think it's a testament to Francis McDormand again, who's one of our greats. But it definitely, you know, uh, it just it just sort of put a divide between Fern and, and me as a viewer in, in this idea that, like, there was an opportunity. You know, I'm, I haven't been back to L.A. in three years. I'm in L.A. now. I'm driving down the streets and I'm seeing literally like tent cities like I mean, it was not great when I left. But now there's like tent communities. It's it's insane. So to think about this idea and what you were saying about how it correlates to kind of the way the world is right now and people being in in dire straits, this idea that somebody would say, here's this beautiful craftsman house, you know, surrounded by trees and you come live here. And that they would go, no, I'll stick with the bucket and my shitty van. It just sort of made me go, come on, you know? (laughs) Yeah, the romanticism of being on the road in a tiny house. Like, I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. I love the concept. Still haven't done it. Yeah, and the practicality it, is something else. <laughs> exactly. And if I do it, it's by choice. I still have an apartment at home to come home to. And I'm only going to do it for a couple of months until I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm coming home. It's not forced by any means. So, yeah, I agree with you on the, um, the force for me. Like, wow, I have to wake up. I have to shit in a bucket. Oh, but look, I'll look out at this lovely, lovely sunrise. And, I'm, you know, I'm going to try and put a good spin on it. But yeah, you're right. Like having to live in a van is different than getting to live in a van. Well, that's our take on Nomadland and runs the list of movies. Again, I think it's an interesting list of films. I think there's, I think there's things to like and dislike about all the films this year. So I think, yeah, one last thing, if I could say anything about these uh, five films, it's that it's really nice that we're getting the variety that we're getting not only in terms of the stories told, but the, the people that we're seeing reflected on the screen, um, you know, from Korean to this younger white girl, to a guy from the forties to, you know, seventies of, you know, freedom fighters or whatever. And, and then a woman in her, in her sixties um, just trying to survive. I think, you know, it's a pretty good time to be a movie lover. I think Sean is true on both sides of the camera. I mean, what we're seeing in front and then to have two women on this list of uh, uh, directors, the DGA. And I think similarly, they're both on the Oscar list as well. So uh, it's nice to nice to see that. Thanks everybody for being here guys. It was great talking. Thanks again. Good to see you all. Yay. That's a wrap for this episode. Join us again on Thursday for part two of our DGA coverage, where we're discussing the nominees for first time director. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. I really appreciate your feedback. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, and below the line, one word, not biz. That's B-I-Z. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. And new listeners, the best way to peruse previous episodes is at our website, belowtheline.biz. More than 70 episodes available. Maybe we talked about one of your favorite shows. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. As always, thanks for listening.